are going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 12. I'm going to read through this, so follow along with me. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrows brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we started a short sermon series that'll lead us up to Easter, and we're talking about repentance. And what we're going to say now for the next couple of weeks is that repentance has different ingredients. There are different things that when you put together, leads to biblical repentance. And so today, we're going to be looking at one of those ingredients. It's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Now, to help us understand godly sorrow, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 7. And this passage requires us to go back in time and do a little historical understanding of what was happening in 2 Corinthians, because this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church about something that was happening. So we're not going to really understand this passage if we don't understand a little bit about that history. So here's how it goes. The Apostle Paul planted a church in a city called Corinth. Corinth was a city much like London. And that church was going along okay. And Paul was pastoring the church. He was leading the church spiritually. But Paul was also a pretty busy guy, so he would travel around a lot. And one day when he was traveling, he received news that there was a person in the church who was acting in such a way that was very dishonoring to God, disobeying God's teaching. And this person was also creating division and discord in the community. And the way this person was doing that was by challenging Paul's authority. Sort of saying, we can't really trust Paul. He's never here. He's not really that godly. And so this person was kind of a troublemaker in the community, leading people away from the gospel, challenging Paul's authority. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he hears about this, he's concerned for the church. And so as verse 8 says, Paul writes the church a letter. And it's a stern letter. It's a strong letter. It's kind of forceful. And Paul says that when he first sends the letter, he had regret. Have you ever sent an email too fast? You know that email that should have stayed in your draft box just a little bit longer? When Paul sends this letter, he goes, oh no, because he feels afraid that the force or the sternfulness of his letter is going to make the 
church in Corinth sad. And it did make them sad. But the kind of grief that Paul felt was the same kind of grief that a parent might feel if your child is sick and needs surgery. You can't bear to see your child under the knife and yet you submit them to it because you know that pain is necessary to avoid longer-term damage. So Paul takes his pen out and he writes this stern letter and he says to the church, you need to own up to your wrong. You need to challenge and confront this person who's leading people astray. You need to come back to the gospel. You need to repent. And the church does. The church gets Paul's letter. They feel sorrow, godly sorrow, and they end up journeying on the path of repentance. Now that's the background. But that background for this occasion of this letter introduces this concept of godly sorrow. And as I hope to show you today, godly sorrow is not something that we talk about that much. And yet as I've been preparing today's teaching and thinking about this passage, I see it to be both incredibly important and life-giving and also essential if we're going to be people who experience spiritual health the way God wants. So you might be brand new to church. You might be going to church for decades and decades. But I think for today, we get to understand something more about spiritual life. And more than that, one of the ways that God wants us to have joy and peace in his presence. So godly sorrow, that's the background. Three things I want to show you from this passage. First, godly sh sorrow should, or it might, challenge the way you view God. Second, we're going to consider what are the differences between godly sorrow and what's sometimes called worldly sorrow. And then third, we're going to explore practically, well, how is it possible to be sorrow in a, sorrowful in a way that's godly? So challenging our view of God, the differences between different kinds of sorrow, and then how it's possible to be sorrowful in the way God intends. First, this passage probably, at least for some of you, will challenge the way that you view who God is. Here's what I mean. For many people, especially people who are younger, I'm not going to define that just so I don't alienate any of you, <laughs> but people who are generally younger, and especially people who have been formed in the West or big cities in the world that have been Westernized, Subconsciously, whatever you say about your beliefs, subconsciously, many of us relate to God like he's a grandfather in the sky. That is, we relate to God like his primary purpose is to make us happy, to never say no, and to make us comfortable. To give us treats, to take us to do fun things, and to leave the discipline to somebody else. Whether or not you admit it, whether or not you're willing to talk about it, for many of us, that deep view of God is embedded in our heart. Because we've been formed in a Western culture that prioritizes individualism, it prioritizes apathy and comfort. To prove my point, in 2005, there was a landmark book. If you're sort of into the sociology of religion, this book came across your desk, but probably because, you know, you're not. Uh, it didn't, but it was a very significant book. It's called Soul Searching. And the sociologist who wrote that book surveyed a bunch of teenagers, thousands of teenagers. 
And they were trying to uncover not what did those teenagers say was their religious views, like I'm a Catholic or I'm a Christian or I'm Jewish, not, not that, but what was their functional belief? Like how did they actually live? And what did that reveal about what they really believed about life and about God and about everything? And after they did all these surveys, the sociologists concluded that the way we could best describe the religion of people who were teenagers in 2005, which, by the way, if you're doing the math, is you or the generation just ahead of you. And the sociologist said, the religion that can best characterize this generation, the religion to characterize this generation, they called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Which is to say, we basically think God's out there to make us feel comfortable and happy. That's what the word therapeutic means. Let me read to you an excerpt from this landmark book. They said, this religion, the sort of felt beliefs of young people, is not a religion of repentance from sin, of living as a servant of sovereign divinity, of building character through suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, or of spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of justice. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among young people is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. It is about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems and about getting along amicably with other people. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, here's what I want you to do. Contrast that with our passage. Because here's the Apostle Paul saying to a church, I wanted you to feel sorrowful. I wanted you to see the error of your ways in such a way that it caused you to grieve and to be sad. Now, we'll get to that sorrow in just a second. But do you realize right off the bat how much this confronts us? Because we're formed as a people to think that God's purpose is to make us comfortable and happy. And yet the Apostle Paul comes to the church and says, this God is so holy He's so pure, he's so blameless, he's so other that he's grieved every time you walk away from him, every time you disobey him. And the response to that, Paul says, is sorrow, or at least it should be. So this passage, first of all, is meant to challenge our view of God. Do you have a God made in your own image? Or is your God the God of the story of the Bible, which is so majestic he's the king of majesty as we sang so that he's grieved when you do anything that turns away from him might challenge your view of God this morning so second let's press in and say well what kind of sorrow is this God interested in what kind of sorrow is the sorrow verse 9 that this kind of God intends let me be clear here we're not talking about sorrow in response to suffering or hard stuff if something bad or hard happens in your life, it's totally normal to feel sad. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's talking about here is the kinds of sorrow that people experience in response to sin. 
Sin, by the way, needs to be defined. We, we say this a lot here at Reality, but because it's the whole point of our sermon today, sin in the Bible is not just bad behavior. Sin fundamentally is a posture of the heart that says to God, I don't need you and I don't want you. Sin is saying to God, not your will be done, but instead my will be done. Sin is putting self in the place of God. And sometimes sin looks really moral and upright and good. And sometimes sin looks really bad and terrible and awful. But in both instances, what makes sin sin is not the behavior. It's the posture of the heart that's seeking to avoid God and stand in his place. Now, the way sin manifests yourself in your life happens in all kinds of ways. It can be behavioral. It can be an attitude. It can be the way you speak to people. Sin has all different ways it manifests itself. Remember, the Corinthian church was experiencing sin. There was someone in the community that was pulling people away from God and leading people to forsake him. And what Paul's trying to show the church, what we're learning today, is there's a way to experience sorrow in response to sin that is good and a way to experience sorrow in response to sin that isn't. Look with me, if you would, at verse 10. Paul defines these two terms. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, Paul says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance and it leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Those are the two contrasting visions of sorrow that Paul's giving. In response to sin, you can always experience either worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, he says, brings death. Godly sorrow brings life and ultimately joy because it leads you to repentance. Paul's commending godly sorrow and he's saying avoid worldly sorrow. And so what we need to do for a few minutes is press into both of these and say, what are they and how do they work? Because in this difference is everything. On the outside, these two kinds of sorrows might look the same. But if we mistake one for the other, we're going to be off kilter in our spiritual life. So let's start with worldly sorrow. What is it? What's the thing that Paul says is not a healthy spiritual response and actually could lead to a kind of death? Worldly sorrow. Here's what it is in a nutshell. When you're confronted with your sin, when you see something happening in your life that you know is not good or that you know is not honoring to God, worldly sorrow is sad for the consequences of your sin. You feel sad because you got caught. Or you feel sad because you have to pay some kind of penalty or punishment. Maybe you lose something that you wanted. Worldly sorrow might even be sadness because you failed to live up to your own standards. Like I should be this kind of person and I failed myself again. And so you feel sad. Now, some of those responses are normal and healthy. But notice that from a spiritual perspective... What makes those responses worldly sorrow is who's the most important person in that grief? It's you. You're sad for what you lost. You're sad for the consequences you face. You're sad for the way you let yourself down. In other words, what makes worldly sorrow worldly is that it's self-centered. And you're mourning not the sin itself, but the consequences or the things that have come into your life that are negative because of it. 
And Paul says that kind of worldly sorrow ultimately leads to death. Why? Because it plunges you further and further into yourself. And you become more and more self-absorbed and more and more selfish and self-focused. And that can only cut you off, not just from other people, but ultimately from God himself. So there is a way to be sad and to grieve when you are in sin or when you know that you're not honoring God, but to be sad in a way that's actually a deeper form of selfishness, what Paul calls worldly sorrow. But he contrasts that with what he calls godly sorrow. Godly sorrow means going through the same kinds of weaknesses and brokenness and sinfulness in your life. But when you're confronted with your sin, when you see it, you feel sad, not because of the consequences of the sin, but because of the sin itself. Not because you disobeyed God's law, but because you broke God's heart. Not because you got caught, because the thing itself was a rejection of God's love and God's person. One kind of grief is all about the consequences. One kind of grief is about relationship. Thomas Watson, who I've quoted a couple of times already in this little sermon series, and we'll keep coming back to him. He says in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, writing about godly sorrow, he says this, a person may be sorry and yet not repent as a thief is sorry when he is taken, not because he stole, but because he has to pay the penalty. Godly sorrow, however, is chiefly for the trespass against God. Godly sorrow shows itself to be ingenuous because when a Christian knows that he is out of the gunshot of hell and shall never be damned, yet he still grieves for sinning against the free grace which has pardoned him. Do you hear what Watson's saying? Assume there were no consequences for your sin. Assume you could get away with it. Assume nothing bad ever came into your life because of the sin you commit. Would you still grieve? And if the answer is yes, that's godly sorrow. Because you're not grieving the consequences, you're grieving the thing itself. That there's a holy and a loving God out there who's come to you in grace and love and every single sin is a rejection of him. It's a rejection of that love and grace that he so freely has given. And if you begin to feel that, if you begin to feel that kind of sorrow, Paul says that's godly sorrow. And that leads to repentance and ultimately leads to joy. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Those are the two contrasting visions of sorrow. Now, if this sounds a tiny bit abstract, let me give you a case study. Let's just look at some lives and unpack this. Old Testament, two people who lived their lives kind of side by side, and they were both big time sinners. They both did some pretty bad stuff. I'm talking about a guy called King Saul and a guy called King David. On the outside, they both did some pretty awful things in their life. But on the inside, one of them began to unravel and fall apart and ultimately died in disgrace and shame and spiritually far from God. The other person, again, a big sinner, felt peace, grew in character, and ultimately died close to God. And you know what the difference between the two of them was? Not that they were sinners. It's that one of them had godly sorrow 
and one of them had worldly sorrow. So King Saul, the prophet comes to him because King Saul, again, has disobeyed God. He's sort of rejected God's word. He said, I'm going to do it my own way. So the prophet comes to King Saul and says, in effect, you've lost your ability to be king. God is taking you off the throne, which is effectively the prophet saying this thing that you really want, you've lost it. You can't have it anymore. God's taken it from you. And when Saul hears that, he says, oh no, please pray for me. And then he says, I have played the fool and I've erred exceedingly. What he's saying is, I shouldn't have done that. Pray for me. In other words, he's experiencing worldly sorrow. On the outside, it might have looked like someone who was really grieved because of their sin. But what he was deeply grieved about was the consequences that he lost the kingship. And even as he starts to feel grief, he's still the subject of his grief. I played the fool. I did terribly wrong. He's very self-referential. And his life begins to fall apart. You compare that with David. David did some pretty bad stuff too, really bad stuff. Hurt a lot of people. And one day a prophet comes to him and confronts him with his sin. And David confesses his sin. And then in one of the most important poems or songs in the whole Bible, Psalm 51, David in repenting for that sin says this. He says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you judge. In other words, he's laying his soul out and he's saying, I broke your heart. This isn't about me. This isn't about the consequences. This isn't about what I'm going to lose. This is about the fact that I broke your heart. David wasn't minimizing the fact that he hurt other people, but he knew that ultimately all sin was a rejection of God himself. And that's what brought him grief. And that's ultimately what led him to repentance. And so today is an invitation to do some self-examination. And to say, when you are confronted with evil in your heart, how do you feel sorrow? Do you feel sorrow? And is it a kind of worldly sorrow that's ultimately self-referential? Or is it a godly sorrow that says, I've broken God's heart. And I want to repent and turn back to him. It's not easy. It's not like you can just sit here and muster it up and say, okay, I'm going to put away worldly sorrow and do godly sorrow. It's this art of spiritual life that we have to grow into. So here's the question as we close our sermon today. How is it possible? How can you be a person who experiences godly sorrow, practices godly sorrow? Four things. Four things. First, seek correction and conviction. Ask God to give you the gift of godly sorrow. It may seem odd to say it that way because you're like, how is this a gift? It doesn't feel like a gift. Oh, but it is. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It's a gift to be able to see how our sin is a violation or a rejection of God and to turn back to him. So seek it out. Ask God, search me, know me, see if there's any wickedness in my heart and lead me in the way everlasting. Also, by the way, 
how did the Corinthian church become aware of their error? Is because Paul wrote them a letter. In other words, Pastor Paul said something that brought conviction. It was in the community of faith, a church just like this, that conviction came. And so don't neglect spiritual community. Whether it's a small group or Sunday worship or just friendships with others, one of the ways that godly sorrow can arise in our hearts is as we engage in community with each other and God convicts us of our sin through the community of faith. So be open to it. Seek it out. Recognize that if God is holy and majestic, his job is not just to make you happy and comfortable, but it's to lead you in the way of repentance. Second thing, how do you experience godly sorrow? Learn to see how much sin wants to steal from you. If you were out in the savannah or the jungle and you saw a little baby lion a couple weeks old, you would say, oh my, how sweet. A baby lion, so cute, and you'd probably want to pick it up and pet it. If you saw that same lion two years later, you would be terrified and in grave danger. Many of us relate to sin any form of disobeying God like it's a baby lion that we can control, that we can just sort of stroke and it won't really do us any harm. But it'll grow. And every single sin, every impulse of the heart to choose self over God, if given space, will grow up into something that will destroy you and destroy your life with God. Sin wants to steal from you. It wants to steal your joy and your peace and your hope. And it will take as much as you allow. John Owen, who was a pastor not far from here many years ago, said it this way. Sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or to entice, it would have its own course. It would go to the utmost of sin of that kind. So every unclean thought or glance would become adultery if it could. Every envious desire would lead to oppression if it could. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. See how much sin wants to steal. You can't actually control it. You can't just say, oh, it's okay. It's a little pet sin over here. It's not going to be that dangerous. It wants to grow and rob your joy and peace and your hope in God. See that. Third, how is it possible to experience godly sorrow? See how loved you are. See how loved you are. Ultimately, the thing that will lead us to great sorrow in our sin, the kind of sorrow that God intends, is to see sin not just as breaking rules, but breaking God's heart. And that's not abstract. It became personal and very real in Jesus Christ. Because he's Jesus Christ, when he came to this world, when he came to earth and he lived among us, he was a person who lived a perfect life. He never had anything to be sorrowful about as it relates to his own sin. And yet when he went to the end of his life in the garden and he was praying and he knows that in just a matter of hours, he's going to be killed. He's going to be betrayed by his closest friends. Jesus kneels down in the garden and he says to his friends, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
And in the garden, Jesus, the one who never sinned, experiences ultimate cosmic sorrow. Why? Because in that moment, he was dying in your place. To say it differently, he was taking your sin upon his shoulders, which means he was taking all of the times that you should have been sorrowful for your sin and weren't, he was dying for it. And all the times that you, even in your sorrow, were more concerned with self than you were with God and his glory, Jesus died for that too. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read this. Jesus was despised and he was rejected by others. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah, looking down the corridor of time to the sacrifice of Jesus, is basically saying this. He was the only person who deserved to be completely and truly happy because he never did anything wrong. And yet his life was marked by sorrow because he carried yours. And all the ways that you should have been sorrow for your sin and weren't, he died for it. There's grace for you today. Because there is no sin so great that Christ's grace is not greater still. And so if you today are feeling weighed down and convicted, wow, I, I'm, I don't even feel sad about my sin the way I should, that's what Jesus died for. He died in your place and for that sin. And so what does that mean? Do you see how loved you are? Do you see how infinitely loved you are? That even for the times where you should be sorrowful for breaking his heart and aren't, he paid the price. And to the degree that you see how much you're loved, that's going to keep you close to him. That's going to keep you from wanting to wander away from his heart. Not out of duty, but out of delight. That someone like that loves you that much. Do you see how loved you are? How infinitely gracious and merciful that love is. And fourth, so seek correction, see what sin wants to steal, see how loved you are, and fourth, finally, remember that godly sorrow is meant to produce joy. Some of you, you really need to hear this sermon because you are pretty overconfident and you need to be challenged and convicted. But there are some of you, and I need you, if this is you, I need you to hear me, that doesn't describe you. You are more prone to introspection, to self-doubt, and to despondency. And when you hear a sermon like this, what begins to happen in your mind and your heart is, oh my goodness, I'm not sad enough. Maybe, but maybe this. Remember that godly sorrow is never the goal of godly sorrow. The goal of godly sorrow is joy. Because godly sorrow is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you into God's presence where he overwhelms you with his grace and with his mercy. Where he says to you, my grace is much, much more powerful than your sin. So yes, grieve over it, but grieve as those whose sorrow is turning into joy. 
because godly sorrow is meant to lead you into joy. Or as Psalm chapter 30 says, weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Or as Psalm 126 says, those who sow in tears are meant to reap with joy. Or as one of my heroes used to say, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus because he's altogether lovely. So godly sorrow, yes, we as a church probably need to be challenged to grieve our sin more than we do. But a church that's filled with people who are godly sorrowful is not a gloomy church. It's a joyful church because godly sorrow leads us to repentance and it leads us into God's presence. So let's know that today. And if you especially are prone to despair or despondency, let this good news actually encourage you that God is inviting you into joy. And as a community, we want to walk together in the sorrow and pursue God's joy as we repent and as we turn from the kingdom of self back to God's kingdom. So let's pray and ask God to help us do that right now. God, as we come to this time of response, we acknowledge that we need the power of your spirit. We need to be challenged to put away worldly sorrow and to grow in godly sorrow, to see our sin the way you see it. And more than that, to see Jesus, our champion, who loved us so much, he died for us and in our place, that he bore our sorrows, even the ways where we're not sorrowful rightly, that he died for that. So help us today to see Jesus, to see our loved and loving Savior, and to respond to his grace as we come now to this time of surrender, of praise, and of repentance. We pray this together in Jesus' name and for his glory. And everyone said, amen.